Amen. Michael, don't leave. I need your help just a second, if that's okay. Actually, praise band, I don't know if you can do this or not, because I'm going to put you on the spot. Today is my son's 13th birthday, and he's sitting in the back. Can we give him a happy birthday song real quick? If we've done that one silly song from camp, we can do this one, right? So, I think so. Yeah. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Asher. Happy birthday to you. All right, now, while they're transitioning, you may be, well, he never sang happy birthday to me as a pastor. Well, when you're a 13-year-old kid living in my house and I claim you as my tax dependent, I'll sing you happy birthday on Sunday morning in front of the whole church, okay? So that's just the reality. That's the perks of being a pastor's kid, all right? So uh, 13 years today, 13 on the 13th, so anyway. All right, uh, before I get started, don't forget about the uh, Next Gen Ministry Super Bowl party. Also, at the same time, I'll be taking us through Rediscover Church on Sunday night uh, down there in the sanctuary. It has more of a small group feel to it. It's not just didactic teaching. I would encourage you to uh, make either one or both. You actually could have time to make both. You could go to one and then come down to the other one. Uh, so you've got plenty to do here and choose from on Sunday night. So, all right, we're working through the Gospel of Luke. I would like to invite you now to please turn with me to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. As we're moving through this book, we just finished last week the parable of the prodigal son. And now we are going to, which is the parable of the prodigal son, maybe one of the most well known and beloved parables of all of Jesus' ministry. And now we're going to look at one of the least known and most misunderstood parables of all of the Gospels, and that's going to be the parable of the shrewd accountant, okay, the shrewd manager. Uh, how many of you have ever heard a sermon on this text before? You ever heard a sermon about the shrewd manager before? Okay, great. So you'll have no idea if I'm telling you right or wrong, right? You'll have to do the homework later for yourself, right? All right. Um, now, let me give you a couple background things here before we get started here. Uh, first of all, this is in line with those teachings from 15, should be understood within the context that Jesus is speaking to a group. And in this group we have Pharisees, and in the last three parables He's speaking to them and leaving a door open to them. But this parable, the parable of the shrewd manager, is actually pointed or directed toward the disciples of Jesus Christ. And if that is true, and it's pointed towards the disciples of Jesus Christ, then not only does it speak to them, but it speaks through the ages to us that sit here at Grace Baptist Church this morning during the service. So with that in mind, let's now turn our minds and hearts and Bibles to Luke 16, verses 1 through 13. Hear the word of God, church. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn to your account of, of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do. So that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning the master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, 
How much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than when the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into their eternal dwellings. Once one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? So servant, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Amen. May God have blessing to the reading of his holy, inerrant, and infallible word. And I pray he will write this truth on all of our hearts because the grass withers and the flowers fade. Say it with me, church, if you know it. But the word of our God endures forever. That's right. Okay, let me quickly kind of break this down for you. This is an odd parable. It almost feels like in this passage Jesus is commending dishonesty as we have a dishonest uh, manager here and he is being commended it seems for what he does with the books. Uh, So here's the setup. First of all Jesus' description of the circumstances fall in verses 1 and 2. The shrewdness and dishonesty swearing here with the manager. Uh, Verses 3 and 4 He's going to get, how's he going to get himself out of this mess? He's contemplating how he's going to do it. Verses 5 and 7, we're going to see what he actually does and how that works. Uh, Verse 8, Jesus shows you what the master says about the manager and what he does. And Jesus himself makes an application of the master's comments and the manager's actions to his disciples. Then in verses 9 and 13 there, Jesus makes a series of future applications to the disciples. Uh, Jesus here in this series wants them to, in these five kind of applications of this story, these disciples to be different, markedly different than the Pharisees who Jesus says over and over, love money. So let's go back to the beginning. There was a rich man who had a manager. So we have two people that are the main characters of this parable. Now, I don't think the rich man in this narrative is a wicked person. I don't think so. Uh, It's been refreshing. I hope you're doing your read through your Bible with us through this year in the newsletter, kind of keeping up with that. You know, in the Old Testament, when they would talk about wicked men or righteous men, what they meant by that, a a righteous man will be happy to absorb the cost of something or to spend something in order for the betterment of the larger community, whether that was a village or a synagogue or the New Testament, a church, they will absorb some of the costs for the betterment of the group. But a wicked person is contrasted as one who will pull out resources from the group to better themselves, right? So they will damage the group in order to better themselves. So I think the rich man here, remember, the Bible doesn't say there's anything wrong with being wealthy. 
You know, Tim Keller points out an excellent point in, in his preaching, in his ministry. And I would al almost add that alcohol and wealth are very similar in the following regard. Whenever people have a lot of money, it just tends to exaggerate what is already within them. Or if somebody gets drunk. See, I wasn't around as many rich people growing up. We had a few in our family, we, we had, but we had alcohol, and uh, that was an issue that I saw on a regular basis. Alcohol can do a similar thing. Alcohol can sort of just uh, exaggerate what's already inside of a person. So if you get a lot of money and you're a greedy person, guess what happens when you get the money? You become more greedy. But if you're a generous person and you get a lot of money, you get a windfall, guess what you do with your money? You're more generous to others. Uh, if you're a hateful person, before you get money, you become an extra hateful person once you get money, right? And if you're a kind person, you tend to become even a kinder person once you get money. It just, it doesn't really necessarily, you know, money's not good or evil. Money is kind of neutral. But what money does is it tends to uh, highlight where the heart is. Somebody once asked me, you know, if I was okay with uh, accepting a tithe from the lottery because it's based on a win-lose scenario and probably not good stewardship to, to do that. And I said, well, I reckon the devil's had that money long enough and the Lord can use it too, right? Because money's neutral, right? So uh, we can do a lot of good things with that for the Lord. Uh, so I'll be glad to take your lottery winnings in here at Grace Baptist Church anyway. So we have a rich man here. So I don't think he's a scoundrel. Now we're going to see a parable later where there's a rich man who is a scoundrel. But that's not this parable. Here's the scoundrel. He had a manager, right? The manager's the scoundrel here. He's the, he's, the, he's the villain here. He's the bad guy or whatever. It's chances were here. Charges are being brought that he is wasting his possessions. I, you know, this is a guy, this is some kind of a farming community, farming situation where people had hard times. They borrow from this rich man, borrow oil, borrow barley, whatever was needed to survive and keep their their businesses afloat, and they would have to pay the loans back with a little interest. Not unlike what we have today, this is a usury has been going on for years, loans have been going on for years. This guy was either skimming off the tops, like adding a little bit extra and pocketing the difference for himself, or he was just taking what was being paid and using it on himself instead of filing it where it was supposed to go. It is not unusual for those that are very wealthy to have hedge fund managers, to have those that manage their accounts. And they don't always monitor and watch their books as close as they should. As long as money goes in their account, they can live the life the way they want to. That's all they sometimes care about. But charges are brought here. Look at verse 17. Or excuse me, look at verse 2, chapter 16. When he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Now, is this man asking him a question or is he making a... <laughs> a declarative statement about what he already knows. Which one is it? It's a declarative statement, right? He already knows he's been skimming off of the top. Uh, so he says there, now, I want you to notice something. He, he is aware that he's, this man's been stealing from him and wasting his resources, that he has this corrupt manager. He, he was wealthy enough, he could have hired a group of men and could have gone in and said, get your stuff, you're done. Don't touch any more books. Don't touch anything else of mine. You're out of here. Okay? He had the money and the means to do that. There is a graciousness here in how this rich man deals with this shrewd, dishonest thief. Look what he says. What is this I hear? Turn in the account of your management. So he just tells you, you're going to have to go get your books and turn them in. You're done. Okay? Uh, for you could no longer be 
manager. So now we're being set up here for the conflict of this dishonest manager, okay? Think about this for a minute from his perspective, the dishonest manager. You've been wasting resources. You've been skimming off the top. You've been found out. Now you're about to lose your job, okay? So the accounts come due, and you have to give an account, right? What's the response of the, of the manager here in this verse? Is there a response? It's silence, isn't it? He's silent. He just, in my mind, when I think about this parable, I just think of him hanging his head down and being quiet. Now, not all the time, but sometimes when people just hang their head down in silence, it's an admission of guilt, right? What's a time that we were, we can say with confidence that silence does not mean guilt? What about when Jesus goes before Pilate, right? When Jesus goes before Pilate, he's questioned, accusations are hurled towards him, and what happens? Jesus is what? He's silent. But his silence doesn't mean guilt, right? But in many cultures, silence assumes guilt. As a pastor, I've had many things levied at me throughout the years. I've had a, I, I wish I would have kept a record of all the things I've been called, right? Remember what Jesus said, if everyone thinks well of you, uh, this is a Travis Teller version, but basically you're probably not doing your job, right? Well, I've had my fair share of things levied at me. I've, had, I've been called Satan and all these awful things before. Looking at you is like looking at Satan, you know. My personal favorite, though, was one time we were dealing, this is another church, this is not here. This is a land far away from here, at least four or five hours from here. One guy looked at me and said, looking at you is like looking at a walrus on a rock. (laughs) That was my favorite one. And if I had been quick enough, I would have said, well, if I'm a walrus, then I guess you're the egg man, right? (laughs) Some of you get that? No Beatles fans out there? All right, anyway. (laughs) So I was just silent. The others in the room took up for me. That's a better way to do it for church leadership, I think. So silence doesn't always mean guilt, but here I think it means guilt. Verse 3. The manager said to himself, I love this verse here. This is quite comical to me. What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig and I'm too ashamed to beg. So he just looks out here and here's what he realizes. This is a man who has soft hands, right? All right, this is a man that does not do manual labor. If you've got soft hands, you're you're not picking up shovels and all that. I want to tell you about a friend of mine named Mr. Lou. Mr. Lou has a unique privilege that... As far as I know, he's the only human being who has had this pleasure in the world of construction ever. And that is he got to work with not one, not two, but three generations of tilers. He worked with my grandfather in construction. He worked for my dad in construction and brick and block masonry. And then when I turned 16, guess who got got tossed out into the brick and, and block field to do construction? Me, right? So he sent me out there and uh, I, uh, I had to, I had no training, you know, Good news is for being a laborer, for a brick mason, you don't need a lot of training, right? You just have to be able to move heavy stuff. That's the main requirement, right? Well, I get out there, and they do something called shaking the mud. Has anybody ever heard this term before, shake the mud? Do you know what that? Raise your hand if you know what that means, one or two of you. Okay, I'm going to explain it. So as the day goes on, there's mortar that's placed on a, on a piece of, of board, like plywood, and the mason takes his trowel and sticks it in that mortar, and he does what we call butter the brick. He butters the brick, he runs a line of mortar, sticks it in place on the line, nice and even. But as the day gets hot, guess what happens to that mortar on the board? It gets stiff, and you need to work some water into the mortar so that you can still butter the bricks. Otherwise, you're just going to have a piece of, of uh, 
plywood with a bunch of dry mortar on it, which is useless to everyone. So you got to shake the mud every now and then. The Masons will say, shake the mud. Well, I got put out on the job site, no train, no nothing. Mr. Lou squinted at me. He looked at me and he said, Travis, shake that mud. I was like, uh, 16 years old, no clue how to shake mud. You know what I did? I grabbed the board and started shaking it right there. He, he, he said, Jackson, that's my dad's name, Jack, Jackson's out here to me. Don't Give me your shovel. He grabbed my shovel. He, he showed me how to shake mud. And, and every, every other mason said I did the best job of any of the laborers out there after that. But boy, that was a humbling experience, not even be able to do a mason laborer job. This man knows he's not strong enough to carry hod. One day I was out there in the hot summer heat. Mr. Lou looked up at me and he said, Travis, there's been many preachers called to ministry, because he was actually a pastor from years ago. Many preachers called to ministry while they were carrying hod on a hot summer day, right? <laughs> what does he mean by that? He means a lot of people went in ministry because they didn't want to dig ditches. They didn't want to carry heavy brick and block. They didn't want to shake mud. They didn't want to make money with their hands. They didn't want that hard money. They wanted something easier. They thought ministry would be easier. Turns out ministry's hard. It's just the weight is different. It's not blocks and brick you carry. It's tragedy and death. It's a different type of weight. But anyhow. And he says here, I'm ashamed to beg. So he's too proud to beg, and he's too soft for manual labor. He's got to figure something else out. You see this quandary that he's in? Verse 4, the solution. Before I go on there, though, let me say this. You know, a minute ago when I talked about he had no excuse, one thing that I thought about as I was reading this, this gracious rich master reminds me of the gracious rich father that we serve. And there has been no person from the birth of Adam, from Adam and Eve and their children's birth forward, who have any excuse when they stand before God for their squandering of the time and the life and the resources that God has given them. It's one thing that stood out to me as I was reading this. All right, verse 4. I have decided what to do. So that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses, right? He's, he's figuring this is his problem. So I can't do labor. I can't beg. I got to figure out a way that people are going to let me work with them. Once my reputation's out, I'm ruined. I need to ingratiate myself to these people somehow so that if I can't get a job, I can at least be invited into their homes for a meal and perhaps to stay. So I got to figure out what to do. And here's his plan, verse 5. So summoning, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe the master, right? And then they come back and say in verse 6, a hundred measures of oil. Now, this is no small amount. A hundred measures of oil is roughly equal to a year and a half of wages. So you can calculate that up however you want in your mind. That's a lot of money. It's not something that would be settled quickly. It's going to take a little time to work it off. And look what he says here. Now, I want you to pay attention. All right. What's it say here? Take your bill. Who's going to take the bill? The person that owes the money. Take your bill and sit down and quickly write 50. Who's writing 50? The manager or the person who owes the debt? The person who owes the debt. You, you know what's happening here? This shrewd manager is roping the debtor into his crime with him. <laughs> He's saying, if you'll just take me to the bank right now, 
Keep the car running though. Park right out front. <laughs> I just got some quick business to take care of here. Going to go in and rob the bank. And while you didn't rob the bank, you're at the wheel driving it. Here's, here's one minor application for you. If somebody calls you from a credit card company or a mortgage lender and they say, we're going to reduce your debt, you better be sure and get it in their handwriting and their signature, not your own, because I'm not sure that's going to hold up in court, right? So he's roping them in with him in his dishonesty, right? Now, commentators, it was fun reading commentaries this week on this passage because they're all divided. <laughs> like this is the most confusing parable that Jesus uses throughout the Gospels. Some say he's asking them to reduce it by the amount that he had added on to the bill for himself. Okay, so you know this guy they actually owed fifty to the master, but he tacked on another fifty for himself. Okay, so he's just saying just wipe off what you owe me. As the, as the dishonest manager, that'll be your bill paid. Other commentators say, no, they, he was reducing the usury, whatever percentage was tacked on for it, and they were just having to pay back exactly what they borrowed. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? If you did a mortgage, you didn't have to pay any interest on it. You only had to pay back exactly what you borrowed. I don't know. You pick. It's not clear. I don't know how much it really matters, but it's been cut either way. Verse 7 then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat, which is also roughly the same amount of money, a year and a half wages. Take your bill and write 80. Couldn't reduce his bill as much for whatever reason, but still happy to have a bill reduced. Now, how do you think these debtors feel once their, their debt is cut at a significant rate? Are they happy and joyous? You better believe it. I'm thinking party tonight, right? We're calling in and making some special unleavened bread, maybe putting some turkey sausage on there because we're Jewish and we don't eat bacon, and uh, we're going to have a party tonight, right? It, they're, they're celebrating what has been done here. Look at this, verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. This is almost unbelievable to me. Verse 8 is almost unbelievable to me, right? Remember what I said earlier. Like One of the things that this dishonest manager is banking on He's banking on the goodness of this master and this rich, this rich man, this master. Okay, He's banking on it. Because here is the position that he's been placed in as the rich man that, that is the debt collector. He has the option legally, and rightly so, to go to all these debtors who've had their bills cut by the shrewd manager and say, I don't care what he told you, he was fired whenever he did that. What you have been cut is, not vo- is null and void. You owe me the hundred. You owe me the hundred. Pay up, right? But here's the question, though. This shrewd manager knows he is a good guy. He has already dealt with him honestly and dealt with him graciously. He knows that if he changes this debt and demands they pay back a note that has been reduced because they didn't know that this manager had been fired, right? They weren't aware of that. They thought he was acting in the interest of this master. Well, he thinks that this good master, this rich man, will absorb the cost himself and that he will be viewed as a generous man in the community by all, right? So he knows this rich man's got a bit of his reputation on the line. He's, play, he's created this situation 
where this, this master he served, instead of his reputation as the manager being on the line, now the rich man's reputation as a lender is on the line. Will he be hard and harsh or will he be viewed as gracious and good and righteous? Okay? And that's what he says. You know, he's commending him here because actually the way this works out, the, the, the manager... He has endeared to all these people. He has endeared himself to all of them. He's even roped them into his shenanigans with him. So they're, you know, when he needs a favor, it's going to be favor for a favor, right? It's going to be there. And he's also managed to save his reputation and at the same time make the reputation of his manager better in the community. Isn't that wild how all those things happen at one time? For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. What's he talking about there, right? Well, one implication is simply this. We're stewards. Everything we have is from God. It's not your house. It's really God's house. It's not your bank account. It's God's bank account. It's not your car. It's the Lord's. All these resources that God has given you, they're not truly yours. They're on loan from God. Question is, what are you doing with those resources? I'll tell you another one that may be the most precious one that gets downplayed significantly and that's your time your time is a resource that God has given you are you using your time in a way that honors the Lord and the master and the king and points people to him look at the next verse verse 9 I tell you make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth use your money use those gains right so that when there is a whenever it fails Others will receive you into eternal dwelling. Are you using your money to make friends for Christ? Are you using your money to invest in what is eternal instead of what is temporary? You know, I do a lot of funerals. I, uh, I have a minister's log. And I've probably done, I don't know, Beck, what do you, what do you think? I, I can't think off the top. I've done over 100 funerals at least, wouldn't you say, Beck? So I've, I've buried a church, at least one church in my ministry, right? That, that equivalence of people. I'm going to tell you something. I've never seen a U-Haul go on the ground with one of them, right? Whatever they have amassed in stuff in their lifetime gets distributed out with the family, okay? You don't get to keep any of it whenever you change over. Are you going to invest in what is here and now, or will you invest in eternity, Right? You know, a tithe is just a very simple way to regularly remind yourself that you and your money belong to the one true and living God. You give that not because God necessarily needs it, but because you need the reminder of who God is, right? And it also funds and helps all kinds of mission work here locally and abroad. You know, every, every dollar you give at Grace at least 12 cents of that goes to mission work. Did you know that? It's holding the line for missionaries all throughout the world. Isn't that a wonderful thing? So when you invest and you give here at Grace, every dollar you give is making eternal investments. But let's not stop with eternal investments. I'm going to get in your kitchen now. You ready for me to get in your kitchen? I used to have a preacher say that. You know that your kitchen's where you live on a daily basis, where you make your food and eat your sandwiches. It's how you think and where you are. It's easier to write a check for missions to Haiti than it is to go to Haiti and run the possibility of getting a foodborne illness. Right, Michael? He, he was my nurse when we were in Haiti, and he made sure I didn't die. Thank you, Michael. <laughs> Thank you for making sure I didn't die, you and Justin and, 
And uh, who else helped with that? Uh, yeah, McKinley also made sure I didn't die. She changed out my feed there. And that was rough. It was rough on me physically. It was, it was, a, it was a sacrifice financially. It's easier to write a check for Golden State Missions. We care and love about our fellow Tennesseans. Let's write a check for the Golden State Missions to reach the gospel in all the state of Tennessee. And that's right and good and we should do that. For some of us, though, that's easier than walking across the street and being friendly with a neighbor who desperately needs to know Jesus Christ, right? And, and, and we need to do that, too. It's easier <laughs> to say, welcome to our church on Sunday morning and walk away and not offer to have a meal, break bread, or open your home to folks that are right here in desperate need of Christ-centered community. What are we doing with what God's given us? Are we being stewards that point them to Jesus and build the body of Christ? Or are we having some me time? You know where you find me time in the Bible? It's over in Second Opinions. Have you ever read that book? It's next to Third Hesitations, okay? That's where that's located. Anyhow, verse 10, look at this. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is dishonest in much. Now, I have a story, an illustration for this, and then we're going to close on that because I don't think I'm going to get the last couple verses in. But before I do, I'm going to say one more thing before I completely move on, and uh, that is simply this. When we think about investing time, You know, money's good here, but let's not forget to invest time in the body of Christ that's right here locally. The vast majority of New Testament writings are about local church, not universal church. People get hung up on universal church. But the Bible is very focused on the local body, right? 90% of the New Testament's about the local body, okay? It's easy to stand back, and I can pick on him because he's not in here today, and look at Pastor Danny and say, well... There's just no youth here no more. But you haven't spent any time investing in the youth that are here, right? You haven't spent one minute trying to help them on a Sunday night with youth worship. You haven't spent one minute getting to know any of them and trying to point them to Christ. And on down the line it can go. I've been in church long enough that I can say this, right? When we get very centered on wanting things for us and our age group and for me, that is very lack of stewardship and very lack of understanding of what this is truly about it's about god's glory his kingdom his body okay all right verse 10 one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much uh, closing illustration here, my preaching professor used to tell this illustration, and I think it's very true. don't remember the name of the company, but years ago there was a company, they were getting ready to have the CEO retire. And they had about three or four names of vice presidents on the board that they were considering to become the new CEO of this company. And little, little to be known to uh, the CEO, he's going to go down and eat lunch in the cafeteria, and it's cafeteria style, you know, where used to be like Piccadilly where you know, you're going to get a roll for 50 cents and Jell-O's a dollar or whatever. That's a lot, a lot for Jell-O. You could buy a whole pack for Jell-O, probably 20 cents for Jell-O. I don't know. Anyway, it doesn't matter. So he's about four back from one of the vice presidents that's being considered for the new CEO position. And he noticed that he takes the, loaf of, the, the roll of bread for 50 cents and puts it on his plate. And then he notices next to it, butter is three cents. And he sees this CEO... This vice president watches this, the CEO watches this vice president take the butter and slide it under his roll so that when he gets to the checkout counter, 
he don't have to pay the three cents for the butter, okay? Well, he comes back from lunch. Guess what the CEO does? He goes to the board. He, wa- he marks out the name of that vice president. And the board all says, why'd you, not, why'd you wipe his name off the list? He said, because if this man is dishonest with three cents and can't be trusted with three pennies, he certainly cannot be trusted with $3 million. How much more us, right? All I want to see is a big old booming huge church. I want to see a big old huge booming youth group. I want to see a big old huge kids ministry. Me too. Me too. But what are we doing now? It ain't just let's load up our guns and shoot the pastor and next gen guy, right? I, I'm saying collective we. What are we all doing, right? Are we all investing like we should? Or are we getting what we need and getting out? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we bow before you and we thank you for a text like this. God, help us to be a people who are faithful with a little so that you'll bless and we'll be faithful with much. God, this application hits home to us on so many levels. Lord, let us, let us not be like the Pharisees who love money. And Lord, it's easy for us to stand here today and shake our heads and wag our, or wag our fingers at these ancient Jewish leaders. But Lord, there are too many similarities in just that action. God, today we need to be people who are like the prodigal who understand our place in that last parable and people who are shrewd with what you have given who use our resources to reach those who are far from you. Not just to check on Sunday morning, but our time, our heart, our efforts, our energy. Help us to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing a song of response now. If you're here today and you you know the account's about to be called, you're going to have to stand before the great master, the one who is truly the richest man of the universe, and that's our God, our Father, who is in heaven. And if you know you've got that account coming and you have no defense for the wasted resources you've been given, for the lavish love you've been shown by God, for the fact that you have so many things to be thankful for, won't you come today and have an advocate? Won't you come and have the good manager, Jesus Christ, be the one who stands in your place to give an account for you? Or maybe you're here today and you just need to do the next best thing and follow the Lord in baptism and be part of a church family. Won't you do that as we respond to the gospel being preached this morning? Won't you hear his call and come to him now as we sing? Please stand. I'll be in the back to receive you.